This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Fenton Johnson. Uh, this is about a memoir he's written called At the Center of All Beauty. Subtitle is Solitude and the Creative Life. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you, Fenton, on my show. And uh, I really, I love this book. I thought it was really powerful. Thank you. Um, and I'm happy to talk to you about it. Um, so just as background for listeners, maybe you could talk a little bit about your writing uh, story. You know, I know this is a memoir. It's by far not the first book you've done. You've written several novels, another memoir, uh, and you've been a writing teacher for a long time. Maybe you could talk a little bit about just your background before we talk about the book. Sure. This is my seventh book. I do, as you mentioned, have a, a previous memoir called um, Geography of the Heart, which is a, a, a memoir that I wrote of my relationship with my partner who died of AIDS in um, San Francisco in 1990. He was the only child of Holocaust survivors, and I'm the ninth of nine children of a Appalachian whiskey maker. So there seemed to be a, there was a story that wanted to be told, but also the historical moment impelled me to write that memoir. This book is at the center of all beauty is in a style which I have made kind of organically and from early on my specialty, which is, I think of it as a braid or a weave of memoir and also uh, research of one kind or another. A previous book that I wrote about uh, living with Buddhists and Christian monks interwove interviews, memoir, and actual time living with the monks with research into monastic and contemplative practice. So this book, At the Center of All Beauty, weaves memories of coming to know people that I call solitaries throughout my childhood with research into the lives and the work of particular writers and artists who presented themselves to me as particular examples of um, people that I call solitaries. I should say I use that word solitaries. I borrowed it, stole it from the mystic and uh, monk Thomas Merton, who uh, used it because for the same reason I do, which is we usually use the word, commonly use the word single, but the word single doesn't have any meaning outside the context of marriage. Single is somebody who is not married. And I wanted a word, as Merton wanted a word, to describe people who enjoy, pursue, and in many cases are themselves living alone, but who enjoy and pursue solitude as an active aspect of their lives. Well, and it was interesting that you had this direct connection to Merton in your life, um, and really quite extraordinary that you were able to grow up in the you know in the community where Gethsemane exists i thought that was pretty lucky <laughs> and so and kind of defining well, of so much of your life yeah it was the given you know you didn't think of it as luck or anything it was just the uh was i mean i had i had never um i didn't go to a movie until i was 17 years old and i had never <clears throat> traveled more than uh, 30 miles from the house that I grew up in until I was around 17 years old. Um, it was just 
it was just the it was the life that I knew. It was the only life that I knew. But yes, we did um, grow up. My family's I grew up in a little town in rural Kentucky, um, where which was about three miles from the the the, the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Burton wrote the Trappist uh, Monastery. And uh, my father, as I said, was a, he was a he was uh, in charge of maintenance at a, what we would today call a small craft bourbon distillery, and uh, the monks were using bourbon in the uh, fruitcake fruitcakes that they made and still make um, to uh, pay the bills. And um, my father was the conduit for the bourbon into the monastery and managed always to lose a few bottles along the way, which made him very popular <laughs> with the monks. And um, and he you know, developed a close relationship. And it was the 60s. I mean, in telling these stories, I have to emphasize always that, um, you know, people roll their eyes and say, oh, we always knew they were like that. Um, it was the 60s, a wild and crazy time. And uh, the monastery is not at all like that today. If anything, it's gone in the opposite extreme. But, um, <clears throat> but in those days, um, you know, everything was up for experimentation. And a, a monastery, as I discovered in writing that book, Keep Faith, um, monastery, we think of a monastery as being walled off from the world. But if you stop for a moment and think about it, the nature of the world, the nature of the universe, the nature of life is such that um, it's always and everywhere interconnected. And a monastery, it turns out, is so very often not isolated from the world, but in fact, a kind of um, distillation of what is going on in the world. And this, there were lots of monks. There was a big population of monks there in the 1960s. <clears throat> and many of them were approaching in their 40s. A lot of them were there as um, PTSD um, survivors of um, World, War I, World War II or um, Korea. And they were reaching their 40s and they were getting restless and they were looking to the outward world. And in fact, many of them left. <clears throat> and I just happened to be at that time where they would leave the monastery, come over, stay at my parents' house, come over for dinner, you know, whatever. And the main reason that's relevant to the current book is that it introduced me to the notion of um, Pursuing contemplative practice uh, and pursuing or engaging with solitude as not an extraordinary or weird or strange thing, but uh, a legitimate, ordinary aspect of everyday life. And I would say today that you know it's a uh, it's a it's a, it's a, it's unfortunate that we we don't have in those days. A lands, the landscape was um, populated really throughout the country, more so in some places than in others, but with monasteries and convents. And while, while I understand why they have largely disappeared or are disappearing, um, I, I think it's a great loss to our culture that we don't have in our midst these role models of people who actively value and pursue contemplation, silence, solitude. And in a way, that's why I wrote the book. I mean, you know, it was a childhood influence that was always there. I'd already written a book about um, contemplative practice in a way. But, but um, this was a book that I wanted to write 
specifically about solitude and also because, you know, I'm in my mid sixties. Um, at the time that I began this book, I, <clears throat> I looked around and I'm, as I said, the ninth of nine children, um, all of my siblings, um, married. I'm the only unmarried, um, sibling. And, um, I noticed this remarkable demographic that I was a part of, which is true everywhere in the developed world and increasingly true in the developing world, which is people choosing to live alone uh, or choosing to spend a lot of time in solitude. Uh, And our stereotype of that is, oh, the lonely old spinster who is sitting at home or the dried up old bachelor. And, you know, that wasn't my experience at all. In fact, what I perceived, what statistically we know to be true, is that people who live alone tend to be much more engaged with um, society. They tend to volunteer at rates that are much higher than the rates of people who are coupled. Um, so, you know, one thing led to another, and <laughs> now there's a book. Well, and I thought, you know, I think I think a lot about kind of the creative life. And, uh, you know, because most most of the people that you talk about in the book, you, each, each of the weavings, as you call them, you know, those are portraits of the individuals that um, – you know, you you choose to write about as kind of exemplars of solitude and solitary life. Almost all of them write, most of them writers, a couple of painters, um, or maybe one painter, Paul Cezanne, and then a photographer, Bill Cunningham. Um, and I, you know, I think that the, you know, when you talk about examples for people uh, in their daily lives, you know, it's it, very rarely do people get to experience that kind of solitary uh, power, you know, our, most of the role models and most of the experiences that people have are with people who are extremely social or uh, aspire to sociability, even if they're not, you know, always social. And I think for artists in particular, solitude is critical. It's the one of the core elements of being creative. You know, everything you say is true. I would, I would be sure to add into that mix because I, I chose. Well, for the most part, the artists and writers really chose me. Um, There were people whom I considered and eliminated. Uh, I wanted a interesting mix of people, Nina Simone, and um, uh, one of the more interesting uh, inclusions in the book, Rod McEwen, the poet everybody (laughs) loved but hate in the 1960s. I learned something about him from your book, which I did not realize. So. It turns out Rod McEwen was really a kind of hero uh, in a way that, uh, and was savaged. I'm utterly convinced that he was savaged like Tennessee Williams was savaged, another solitary, um, because they were being openly gay men at a time when they were just being too out and they were being punished by the critics. John Simon, um, the notorious John Simon, was no made no secret of his uh, desire to destroy Tennessee Williams' uh, career because of he thought Williams was being um, too out on stage. Um, these people, uh, these various people, as I say, you know, I, I wanted a, a diverse group of people. I wanted diverse in every way, you know, gender, racial, sexual orientation, 
but what it was that they chose to do, how they lived their lives. But um, but it's also true. I'm, I'm always very careful to point out that um, it's easy to over to in the course of uh, because those names are for people who are active in the arts and culture world. Those are are, are familiar names: Nina Simone, Paul Cezanne, whatever. But it's easy to overlook that two of the principal solitaries in the book are my parents. Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, whom I knew as solitaries, but I hadn't really thought of as solitaries until I wrote the book. And I realized how organically, over the time of their marriage, um, they um, developed and maintained each a space that was theirs, my father's woodworking shop, into which I literally, in all of my time of knowing, her even after my father died i never recall my mother setting foot in the shop in my father's shop and my father and my mother had a greenhouse and my father only went in there whenever there was something that needed to be fixed but otherwise he never set foot in the greenhouse and um you know psychologists tell us that and i find this very and i've been in relationships that been a long time but i've never been conventionally married but I find it very easy to believe what psychologists tell us that the healthiest marriages are those marriages where um, the partners to the or couplings partners to the couple um, uh, make time for themselves where, you know, they have a life and time apart from their marriage um, in, in addition to the marriage itself. And certainly that was, true of my parents, particularly true of my father, who, um, and I'm the youngest child, so I only knew my father as, uh, you know, a man already in his uh, 50s. Um, but he would w- was building an elaborate cabin off in the woods of Western Kentucky and would go off to spend days and days in a row where he would disappear. And of course, this was before there was no phone there. There was before the days of cell phones. Uh, you know, he was completely out of touch for uh, three, four, five days, sometimes a week at a time when he was there entirely by himself. And so it was interesting. I'm I'm really glad that they presented themselves to me because, at least in my imagination, they act as a kind of, um, you know, a more everyday counterpoint to the um, famous people whom I am uh, profiling elsewhere in the book. Well, and also, I mean, not to psychologize too much, but one's parents are probably more of an influence on on one than anybody else. So that you can recognize who they were and be so clear-eyed about it, I think, is really impressive. But clearly, they 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 made you who you are. Yes. Now, of course, <laughs> as anybody, as we all know, uh, but even more so in such a big family, uh, if you asked any of my siblings, particularly the older siblings, who you know, they knew different people from the people that I knew. They knew people who their parents. The, their parents, who biologically are also my parents, but their parents were young people, and my parents were already well advanced into middle age. And um, 
So I, I'm sure that my siblings would have <laughs> different interpretations. Yeah. I think that my parents, uh, who also were, you know, very, very social and, you know, I loved throwing parties. My father loved throwing very elaborate parties. Um, uh, really poured himself into that. Um, but I think, you know, as I, I think it's a, um, as I say, I, I had a, an exposure to and an interest in, um, the contemplative life from early on. But I think most of us, um, uh, not all of us, but most of us, as we grow older, um, and we experience, illness and death we experience the deaths of people that we love it, it is i think just organic that one um turns becomes more uh introspective uh in some way or another so i'm not surprised that even though well you know as i say i'd written a previous book about um forays into the buddhist american buddhist and 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 uh Christian contemplative life, but um, but it's not surprising to me that this particular book comes along right at a point where I'm, uh, uh, you, you know, um, um, you know, staring old age in the face, <laughs> and uh, and uh, being trying to be something of a philosopher about that through the lens of arts and culture. So, uh, th and that sort of leads me to ask you a question that I, I, I was thinking about as I read this book, that, you know, memoir is so different from fiction. Memoir being the, you know, the exposure of self, and fiction essentially being, um, I would call, indirection. You know, the, the a form of self, self is there, but the, for the artist, it's, um, it's storytelling and the story is what you pour yourself into characters and setting. Uh, but memoir, you're, you're, you know, you're, there's no, there's no structure above and, you know, b above and beneath. It's all you. Um, and I guess I want, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you about that because I think, you know, you reveal a lot about yourself in this book. Um, and maybe I, maybe that's, who you are, you know, as a, a, a confessional person, as someone who's willing to share um, an, a lot about yourself. But, uh, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between what a novel does and what a memoir does in terms of your own writing. Well, um, I will say about my memoir, including Geography of the Heart and now this book, that um, uh, I... I, I I don't believe in making things up. I tell my students, uh, if you're writing memoir, if you're writing first person narrative about your life and you're tempted to make something up because you think it's going to make a better story, then what you should do is not make something up, but rather challenge whether you have fully mined uh, the incident for its potential. Because as anybody, as we all know, all of us, writers are not writers, readers are not readers, whatever. We all know that life lived is stranger than uh, fiction. Uh, it's a cliche embodied in the language of this is true. Um, and so the challenge for the memoirist is not um, that, you know, in order to write a memoir that you have to live, have lived an extraordinary and exotic life. In fact, some of the best memoirs are written by people whose 
talent is in taking very small moment and in uh, finding the full potential in that small moment. So that's what I that's what I say to my students. Um, I would say, however, that um, James Joyce says that um, all fiction is finally autobiographical. Um, uh, Henry James says uh, uh, these are both people who, you know, or fiction writers. We have very, in fact, in the case of Henry James, very actively concealing his um, his private life from um, the out- outward world. Henry James says um, the writer stands revealed in uh, every sentence from which he <laughs> so assiduously thought uh, uh, strove to remove himself. Um, so uh, you know, it's uh, it is. Uh, for, for me, the, the difference is not one of so much of fi- fiction and nonfiction as it is um, really um, third person and first person, because all of my fiction, with the solitary exception of one chapter um, in, in one novel, all of my fiction is written from um, the third person. And the um, nonfiction I write, there's an active presence of a uh, first person. Uh, um, uh, uh, So that determines really more the, for me, the choice. Um, I would say, I don't, I don't know that I I, I don't, um, I'll accept absolutely the notion that I, I mean, I've had many people say to me uh, how remarkable it is that I am so frank about my life on the page. I'm sure that that is because I grew up in a, a deeply Roman Catholic, very conservative Roman Catholic, rural, small town, buried in the hills in, in central Kentucky. And um, and uh, secrets were so... Um, were used so powerfully to uh, deform and to uh, manipulate and to control. And um, once I got away from that, um, I I really felt that it was a mission of mine to be as uh, frank and open with the world as I could be um, without uh, I, I, I really try very hard uh, to respect the fact that I am handling other people's stories. And I really try um, very hard uh, never to use the power of writing to um, just as a means to the end of presenting my point of view. Um, because I, you know, I'm very aware that I, that I have the, um, know that I'm controlling the narrative and it's only, but I, I really try to remind the reader as much as possible that it, it, this is my story, not other people's stories. And also particularly to seek out other people and to give them some kind of voice on the page. But I can look back. I, I mean, it's a little bemusing to me to look at my fiction in retrospect um, and see that at times, even when I have striven to make a book um, um, not autobiographical, a, a novel, not autobiographical, um, that in the end, I look back at it and I see, 
<laughs> that I'm all over the page. I'm all over the place, you know. Uh, it, it is true, however, that um, uh, uh, that fiction puts up, takes on a, puts up a scrim, uh, you know, puts up, puts on a mask, and in that sense, um, it provides uh, a glimpse of an interior life, a, a way of glimpsing an interior life that uh, maybe memoir does uh, does not, but. Um, I, I like them both. I, I I find them both. I see them as existing on a. There, there is a spectrum, which is called uh, fiction, and it is the, at one end of the spectrum. And I speak as somebody who was uh, briefly a um, New York Times Magazine staff writer. Um, at one end of the spectrum of fiction is the front page of the New York Times, and at the other end of the spectrum of fiction, there is let's say some radically experimental. Uh, work, but it is all fiction. And anybody who has worked inside the sausage factory of a major newspaper, um, you know, must come very quickly to an understanding of how how the front page is manipulated, to what ends it's manipulated, which stories are put where, um, uh, you know. And uh, so, so uh, you know, I, I would call it I, I would call it all uh, um, all fiction. Having said that, however, when I take on the guise of, when I take on the persona of a memoir writer, I try as, what I say is memoir is as true to um, what happened as, as, as memory, um, uh, as is possible within the constraints of memory. And we all know that memory is unreliable. Everybody knows that. Um, and so inherently, memoir is to some extent unreliable. But I am true to my memory. Um, I do not, if I remember something one way, I report it that way. I, I do not, and I, and I, you know, will, if it's something that's really critical, I will go to other people who participated in, you know, and check my memories against them. But um, I am trying to be as accurate to memory as I can be because otherwise, Go write a novel. You know, if you want to, if you want to really just make it up, if you want to just bend it and shape it to your, to your own ends, then you should you should just call it a novel and write a novel. Well, I thought this book was very contemplative in its in its you know in in the way that you approached um, exploring what is essentially a contemplative story, but I thought that the, that, you know, there was a kind of lyricism everywhere, uh, but particularly for some reason near the end of the book, I thought that you were really kind of, um, you know, kind of musing to yourself, uh, but also to us. And there were just so many places where I found really interesting uh, quotes. And I, you know, I love the Blaise Pascal quote that you have, um, all humanity's problems stem from an inability to sit in a quiet room alone. That is just perfect. And of course, comes right at this moment as we are in the midst of pandemic and this kind of ongoing discussion about people's inability to stay at home, to find themselves uh, alone with them, with their own thoughts and and believe you know being uh, whether they're by themselves or with the you know the few people that they're you know kind of in connection or family to 
uh, you know, it's a kind of subtext that's going on right now in the public discourse uh, that it's, you know, people are either embracing this moment to be allowed to be free of uh, social intercourse, or they're miserable <laughs> because they're forbidden essentially to do the things that they want to do. And and I think this, it kind of highlights what your book is really about, that there's, it is this so, it's so difficult in the noisy world to um, disengage. And here we have the opportunity and a lot of people are, you know, simply falling apart because they don't have the contextual framework that you kind of, that you talk about in the book. Yeah, I, I, you know, it has, has to be uh, has to be underscored that the current situation um, is entirely artificial, and I, I, I I'm, um, you know, people who I, I'm, I'm, I'm wary in that a lot of people that I, I hear from people who say. Uh, <laughs> Uh, gee, um, you know, I'm, uh, I was really looking forward to that time alone, and then I discovered that I, you know, that I that I couldn't put up with it. Well, the situation is, I, I'm alone. It's it's a writer's life is to be alone a lot of the time. Um, but like Henry James, um, I, um, I I modulate my aloneness. I'm I'm um, you know I'm <clears throat> I'm uh, uh, I'd like to think I can spend days uh, alone in um, more or less mostly in, in silence. Um, I don't, you know, I I, I, I uh, don't turn on a television. I don't turn on the radio. I don't turn on music, whatever. Um, but I also am careful to uh, have dinners with friends, go to movies, you know, participate. I volunteer at uh, various, um, I volunteered at the local food bank, you know, that sort of thing. And I have felt as acutely as anybody, probably I think more acutely than many people because I do live alone. I have felt very acutely having that aspect of my life restricted and, um, and largely, um, shut down. Um, I would like to think, I don't know how true this is, I, but I would like to think that, um, these times would uh, give us some occasion to think about uh, the level of, of uh, I'll use that word advisedly, addiction that we have um, uh, to the technology in our lives. And I use that uh, because I'm as susceptible to it as anybody. Um, it's been frustrating for me, in fact, that, you know, during, during a "Quote unquote normal time uh, in my writing time, I, I, I spend would spend hours, you know, writing on a project, and uh, you know, I'd get up to fix a cup of coffee, or I would go outside and attend to a small errand or whatever. But I would spend all that time alone during these COVID days. Um, I it's I, I'm much more susceptible to the you know, checking email um, 70 times an hour and uh, going online to see what if there is a, I, I don't, I, I follow the news as much as I have to. I, I don't, I'm not at all obsessive about following um, the news, but, but I am, I, I, it's been a little troublesome to me <laughs> that, um, 
in this time because the other avenues for a collective life have been denied me that I um, have had difficulty maintaining my the kind of um, discipline and schedule that I had uh, cultivated over um, over uh, over many years. So, you know, for people who are having difficulty with solitude during the era of COVID, my my first response is one of complete um, sympathy because because it it is a situation where uh, many people can be alone for extended periods of time. Uh, without any um, prospect of alleviating that in some way or another. And uh, and that, I think, is really, really challenging. Um, I think it's possible to design, to approach it as a kind of, of discipline and to, um, uh, and to um, make it into a, um, uh, a uh, constructive experience, I guess. But it's 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 a it's a tough time for you know the, the <laughs> it's a tough time for everybody. I was talking to a friend who's a grandparent who uh, regularly takes care of his uh, grandchildren, and he hasn't been able to do so for um, several months because of COVID. Finally, the grand the, the kids you know the, the the children brought the grandchildren, and he said the joy with which these very young children rushed at him, you know, sort of the subtext was, thank you for liberating us from our parents. And the joy of the parents, uh, uh, the subtext of which was, thank you for liberating us from our children. Um, uh, You you know, I I got that as, of course, as uh, any parent would. Well, yes, it is. It's not to say that just because one has the tools for being alone, that it can be something, you know, that it's easy. I mean, in fact, if you talk to any anyone who's spent a lot of time alone, it's not necessarily something that they always want to be doing or could always be able to do. You know, the people who are, you know, up in the fire, fire watchers, I've talked, you know, a guy named Phil, Phil O'Connor in uh, New Mexico who spends summers every summer in the uh, towers, fire watching. But, you know, they welcome the opportunity occasionally to meet the other fire watchers. And, you know, or if some visitor comes along, I think that there's a, you know, it's like, I think it's all, it's partly the enforcement of it uh, rather than it being of one's own making. And then it's also just that, um, you know, you need to have variation. As you call it, the word you used was modulation. I think that that's an important elements so that if you're going to be alone and and enjoy being alone, then you have to take some time to be with others because we are social in our beings. So I I think we just have to find the balance, a new balance in this particular time, which is going to be different for each person. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I would say that the, the key is to, um, to the the thing that the um the thing that solitude allows for is stepping back and seeing one's life one's own life as a kind of uh musical instrument which one can learn how to play and <clears throat> one can make choices about how uh, how one spends time and just as a, the 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 player of a of a, a pianist or a um, cello um, would modulate um, what it is that they are 
uh, the tone and the intensity of what it is that they're playing, uh, most of us have some opportunity to do that with our lives. And the solitude provides the opportunity to um, to look back at that, to, 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 to get some perspective on that. Um, I say, I think at some point in this book, uh, the measure of the difficulty of your solitude is the measure of the reward that it offers. And um, that's because, uh, you know, I was I grew up in a big family, small town. Um, probably the hardest aspect of writing, of being a writer in my 20s and 30s to uh, acclimate myself to <clears throat> was um, the long hours of being alone. But I have found, at least now, that uh, for me, that uh, discipline was has proven to be uh, tremendously rewarding. It, it's about taking a long-term, uh, a, a long-range view of one's life, a longer-range view of one's life, instead of the view of immediate gratification, which is, of course, what um, capitalism is all about. It's really distressing to me to, as just as this morning, you know, when I was out for a bike ride <clears throat> and I encountered someone coming toward me on a bicycle and she, she was programming her phone as she is riding the bicycle. <laughs> and first of all, that's a really, really stupid thing to do. Uh, and, you know, as any number of ER doctors can uh, testify. Um, but also just the notion that, you know, there is a, a fantastic, a amazing uh, world, which is always immediately available to us. And um, I'm, of course, not at all. Uh, I'm, I used to sing. I, I'm going to do so again. I sang with a, a big chorus, a university chorus. Um, I play the banjo. I'm not at all opposed to um, you know, listening to music, but doing something deliberately as opposed to a way of, of just making, just having noise in your head the whole time. Uh, that, that to me, see my students walking down, uh, along the sidewalk, you know, with their heads and their phone, risking their lives and the lives of people around them. Mainly, I just want to say, you know, look at the world around you, that, that the world around you is a pretty amazing place. And um, and if we feel the need to wall ourselves off from it, then maybe we should be talking about um, creating a world that we don't feel that we need to be walled off from. Um, that we need instead to um, to that 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 we want to be open to. I think that's a perfect uh, statement for us to end on because it is so absolutely right and i don't i i think that was terrific well i want to thank you fenton for talking to me about solitude solitariness but also at the center of all beauty solitude and the creative life i think it's a wonderful book and it's really uh one that you know moved me and i will go back to again uh because i think it's an inspiration so thank you so much thank you and if i could conclude just by giving a plug both for Antigone Books, our local uh, independent bookstore, which will sell you books 
bring them to the curb and give them to you. Or there's also now a online book ordering, independent book ordering service, which is called bookshop.org. Bookshop, yes, bookshop, where you can support your independent bookstore and order a book in a way that is as easy as using Amazon. So I want to, I always like to put in a a plug for them. So, um, well, thank you, David, for your uh, time. Thank you. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. I've been talking to Fenton Johnson. Thank you.